Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Use Guys and That podcast. You can find us across all podcatchers, and our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is at UseGuysPod. Email us at info at useguyspod.com or useguysandthat at gmail.com. You can find our entire podcast library at useguysandthat.podbean.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Use Guys and That podcast. Uh, I've got Angel here. I've got Christopher here. And, of course, our guest of honor, Mr. Keith Preston from Attack the System. Uh, if you would like to check out one, I own one of his books. Uh, hopefully someday I'll get to meet him in person when war communism concludes. So that way I can get an <laughs> autograph on my book. That would be wonderful. Keith, thank you very much for joining us once again. Good to be back. Uh, I wanted to ask you right now in the, uh, at least in the, uh, to the Twitter sphere, the online community that we have right now, uh, the phrase radicalization is getting thrown around quite a bit. It's really a hot topic. A lot of us are talking about it. Pete Quinone has been talking about it. Michael Malice, a lot of us have been discussing it. I would like, if you wouldn't mind, for our audience, if you wouldn't mind talking to us about your personal journey, which you've detailed in the book that I showed everybody, but if you wouldn't mind telling people about your journey, how you got from the, um, the position that uh, you were growing up in, you know, that Christian conservatism uh, and your movement all the way to the area you are or the, uh, the uh, position you occupy right now. Yeah, well, that goes back quite a ways. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in uh, in the 60s and 70s. I was born in the 60s, so I grew up in the, my growing up years were, say, the period between the mid-60s and the early 80s. Uh, and I grew up in a place called Lynchburg, Virginia, which is a town in, uh, in the state of Virginia. Uh, it's probably the deepest red area in the entire United States, or one of the deepest red areas. Uh, and it was always a haven for a lot of very fundamentalist Protestant Christianity. The Falwell family uh, is based there. In fact, he was the Falwell senior was actually a friend of my parents at one point. They, he went, Jerry went to the same high school as my father. Uh, they were from the same neighborhood. Uh, so I grew up in that milieu, which in, in the cultural environment I grew up in was normal. There wasn't anything uh, unusual about it. Um, the way that I grew up, I think I may have mentioned this on another program, maybe it was Pete Canona's program, but uh, the cultural milieu, even though it was the 70s, it was really more like the 50s. If you watch the old uh, 1950s TV shows, the ones that are considered the uh, archetypal uh, 50s programs, like uh, what, are, what are some of them, Leave it to Beaver and that kind of stuff, it's this kind of very white bread, sterile, you know, middle class, suburban type of uh, nuclear family type of milieu. Uh, and I remember the, there was a neighborhood I lived in in the early to mid seventies. It was a large suburban development and there were hundreds of families and every single family was a standard nuclear family with like the, you know, the two and a half kids and one and a half dogs. And, <laughs> and uh, except I do remember there was one family that, uh, there was no father because the parents were divorced. Everybody thought they were kind of, you know, way out on the margins, you know, like they were the weird folks or whatever. Uh, because the divorce was a lot less common and less socially acceptable back then, but uh, certainly in that area. And uh, so, yeah, so it was, even though it was the 70s, it was really more like the 50s. And then culturally, the kind of religious subculture I was part of, let's see, I guess you could compare it to what you would find in some of the conservative Islamic societies, not the really extreme ones, like not the Taliban and, and Saudi Arabia and places like that, but typically what you would find, say, among conservative Muslims in Egypt or 
the Northern African countries or maybe the, some of the Southeast Asian countries like say Malaysia or uh, Indonesia or somewhere like that. You know, very traditional, very conservative, only it was Christianity, not, uh, not Islam. Um, although I did know people who had this kind of views you would probably find among Islamic fundamentalists say in Saudi Arabia and somewhere like that as well. So that, I, you know, that, that was certainly a minority, but the, that was there as well. Uh, so yeah, that's what I grew up with. Uh, everybody I knew was, uh, as a kid, was, um, I, it was funny because recently I, a friend of mine was talking about how somebody showed up at his workplace and they were wearing a t-shirt that said, I, I think it said, uh, it said, I, I salute the flag and kneel before the cross or something like that. It's yeah. Apparently that's a popular meme, meme among right-wingers or something, but that would have described the personality of at least 50% of the people that I grew up around, you know, and then the, and then the, and the rest were just your stereotypical, you know, trailer trash or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, so, yeah, so that was the kind of the cultural milieu I was in. Uh, I went to private schools. I only went to a public school maybe in two years out of my entire, uh, you know, what the day they call K through 12. Uh, and most of the time I went to a very bright, conservative private school that was very, you know, right wing in its politics. You know, every day you would stand and say a pledge to the U.S. flag and then to the Christian flag. And then there's a pledge to the Bible. If you, uh, I mean, they really, they really do have all this if you're not familiar with the subculture. Uh, what thing that I think is interesting is that I've had people ask me, they say, how, if you grew up with all that, how come you don't have any, you know, you don't think at all like that today? And uh, I think that probably I, you know, I was just endowed with the genetic gift of being able to see through bullshit a lot easier than a lot of people. <laughs> and not, not through any merit of my own. It's just kind of like being born with a different hair color or something. You know, I think I had a psychological makeup or personality type that I could just easily perceive through nonsense. And by the time I was, I would say, 10 years old, I was starting to see cracks in the ideas of people around me. And by the time I was out 14, 15, 16, I pretty much said, yeah, you know, people around me are full of shit. So uh, <laughs> other things. Uh, I was, uh, when I was in my teens, I was uh, basically a juvenile delinquent. Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, you were asking me before the program that uh, someone was wondering why it is they get pissed off every time I go on their show. I have the same reputation among anarchists today that I did among my neighbors when I was, you know, 15. And that is, uh, I'm the kid that everybody says, stay away from him because he's bad. You know? <laughs> I was the guy that, you know, I would go to the store and, and uh, you know, buy, uh, buy, buy liquor. Like, I, you know, I always looked old for my age. When I was 16, I could pass for 21. So I was the guy who would go to the store and buy liquor and beer for all the underage kids, you know, and hook everybody up with all the best weed acid microbes and excellent excellent <laughs> yeah and like i said it was a very religious environment so you know i used to like the only tattoo i have actually is uh, i have an inverted cross tattooed on my forearm here it was done in jail when i was 18 it was done with uh, a, a guy from the pagans motorcycle club made a needle we took a staple out of a magazine and then tied up a needle to the uh uh, to a pen, to an ink pen, and then made, melted down styrofoam, and then colored the styrofoam with cigarette ashes, and then made the ink. And then I've got this little inverted cross on my, you know, on my forearm that was done when I was in jail when I was 18. So yeah, that's that's who I was as a, a young person. 
Uh, <laughs> you can imagine, you know, what my reputation was among people around me. Uh, when uh, the, the main thing that probably saved me from being uh, from being in in a, in a life of crime, if you consider it being saved or not, I don't know. But the the one thing that uh, probably kept me from being part of a life, leading a life of crime was the fact that most people around me were just really stupid. Uh, you know, I I, uh, I had the same problem with criminals that I did with Christians, and that is, I, I would you know think well, most of these folks are just really dumb. Um, so I, I have, even today, I have a very low tolerance for stupidity. I know when I was, uh, I told someone once that the only type of people that I'm genuinely prejudiced against are stupid people. And I think that's probably, you know, probably holds still. It's probably been my main tendency my entire life. Uh, but as far as how I became interested in radicalism, that started when I was in my early 20s, although it has its roots going back a little bit earlier than that. I remember when I was about 14, 15, I was uh, in North Carolina. I was staying at a resort hotel with my family, and I was watching a TV show. It was one of those television programs, those morning talk programs, Good Morning America, or whatever the ones they, they had back then. And there was a guy running for president from the Libertarian Party. This was when Ronald Reagan was running for uh, election against Jimmy Carter. And, uh, and this guy was from the Libertarian Party. I remember watching this guy thinking, yeah, I kind of like this dude. Who is this? You know, who is this guy? This Libertarian Party. And I never gave it much more uh, thought. And then I, I remember when I was in high school, uh, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention in high school, but uh, I do remember having this English literature class. We were talking about the romance poets like Shelley and Byron and Keats and all those people. And I remember reading a, bi a biographical sketch of uh, Shelley that was in the textbook, and it talked about how he was the uh, um, son-in-law of William Godwin, the anarchist. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Although I was actually more impressed that he was married to Mary Godwin and Ruth Frankenstein. I was like, oh, this dude wife of Frankenstein. Cool. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think those were, that was the, probably the first couple of times that I had any exposure to those kinds of ideas. Um, and when I got to be around, uh, well, I was always into the countercultural stuff. I was always interested in like heavy metal and punk and hippie music and, you know, redneck rock and all that kind of stuff. And I, I used to you know, read High Times Magazine and all that kind of stuff, Maximum Rock and Roll and that kind of stuff that was around back in those days. So I sort of developed an interest in the 60s counterculture and that kind of stuff. There was a bookstore uh, in the area I grew up in. It was run by this old Mormon dude, but he had the all these weird used books about all kinds of strange stuff. And I, I remember I would go to the shop and find all this stuff like uh, the autobiography of Abby Hoffman and, and people like that, you know, the Eldridge Cleaver, Soul on Ice and some of that kind of stuff. Started reading some of that stuff. But uh, when I see when I was, I was in college when I was in my early 20s and I remember uh, I started thinking about all the different philosophies and stuff, you know, how college students, they start thinking about all this stuff, you know, well, what am I, you know, uh, my an existentialist, you know, or sure. they think they, they, you know, they read a few pages of Hegel, but now they're <laughs> they're ready to engage in Socratic dialogue. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I remember thinking about, uh, you know, all the different ideologies and philosophies, and just reading about this kind of stuff from really generic sources, library books and encyclopedia and that kind of stuff. And um, back then, there was no internet or anything like that, and uh, 
I remember reading about different political philosophies and uh, coming across anarchism. And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, William Godwin, he was one of those, right? And uh, I remember remember looking up anar- you know, anarchism in the encyclopedia and all these historic figures like Proudhon and Bakunin and Kropotkin and all that. And thinking, oh yeah, you know, this is a, they've got a real philosophy here. This stuff is kind of interesting. Uh, so I started becoming interested in that and I started meeting people who had similar ideas. And again, you know, I'm an undergrad, you know, college student, I'm like 20 years old or something like that. And uh, so I started hanging out with people into anarchism, as, you know, as, as well as my other circles of associates, you know, heavy metal freaks and right. deadheads and, you know, druggies and that kind of stuff. And I started getting involved in leftist type act, activist activities when I was that around that age. And I don't know how seriously I took it. I mean, it was kind of like, well, we're going to go to a demonstration and, you know, throw some debris and then we'll go to a rock concert and smoke some weed, and, you know, and then we'll go to a party <laughs> while we're shrooming or something, you know. So, uh, but I was into this kind of leftist radicalism, you know, when I was, uh, uh, in my early 20s, and I used to go to demonstrations and that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I went to a, some interesting events. Uh, I was in a, one program I did, maybe this is one of Peter's programs as well. I was talking about some of the riots I was in. I was in a few riots back in those days. I was in, uh, I was at the Pentagon once, and there was, it was a, a protest over the war in El Salvador. It was a, a big issue at the time. And, uh, the uh they they tear gassed the protest i mean i didn't really get catch i mean i got a smell of tear gas but i wasn't one of the ones that really caught that sure i think that see was that the first riot i was in i don't i I keep getting the sequence um it was uh, i was in a riot in san francisco in uh 1988 in berkeley well that was it was actually in berkeley it was a demonstration in berkeley and then i was in canada once and i was at a riot at the uh, u.s consulate there uh, and by the way, uh, the uh, Canadians, among a lot of Americans, have this reputation of being these kind of freewheeling snow hippies or something like that. Like, I know <laughs> a lot of uh, American type progressives think, yeah, Canada, you know, they, they've sure. got it going on. But no, I mean, the cops in Canada are as brutal as any cops I've ever seen in, uh, in the U.S. Um, you know, Canada is actually a rel- relatively authoritarian society, but, you know, by, by Western democratic standards. But uh, in fact, uh, Junior Trudeau, when his father was prime minister, he actually imposed martial law at one point uh, in response to the Quebec um, separatist movement. So, uh, yeah, but I actually you know, saw an, a, a riot up close in Toronto at one point. Uh, I was in a, in a riot in New York City in Tompkins Square Park. I'm, I'm, I'm told that they still have a, a gathering every year there to, you know, in honor of the riot or something like that. I don't, I have been back since then. Uh, but that was over, uh, what that was about was that there was this park, Tompkins Square, it became a haven for a lot of, you know, countercultural type people and homeless people and that kind of stuff. And of course, the gentrifiers and yuppies and all that kind of stuff objected to that stuff. And so at one point, the mayor, Ed Koch, he sent out the NYPD to clear out the park and there was a big you know, battle. I just happened to be there at the time. Well, I mean, I knew it was coming. I kind of wanted to be in on it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was into that kind of stuff for a few years. Uh, when I started getting to be in my, I guess, my middle to late 20s, I started becoming more interested in, in, in these kinds of things from a more intellectual perspective, you know, less, less rioting and rock throwing and more, uh, more, you know, ideas oriented. And 
I started spending a lot of time in the library reading up on all this stuff. If, if you go to a, a library, I don't know about a public library, if you go to a university library and check out the HX 833 section, you can typically find all kinds of literature on anarchism. And if you're interested in libertarianism, I think you have to go to the JC 585 section in a, in a university library, and they've got all kinds of libertarian literature. If you're into Robert Nozick and Milton Friedman and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, so I sort of became a kind of an, a, you know, a minor league autodidact when it came to all of these kinds of ideas. So uh, I started reading up a lot on anarchism and all the different types of anarchism, and the history of anarchism and uh, all the different kinds of historical movements that were its prototypes and overlapping and that kind of stuff, uh, as well as modern American style libertarianism. And then I started coming across people that were into the whole, uh, they didn't call it back this back then, but the, I guess the prepper scene, uh, survivalist and that kind of stuff. I remember I had some friends of mine that were gun nuts, you know, and I used to go to these gun shows with them and gun expos and, you know, they had, no, they didn't have these things they called preparedness expos and all they really were were just, you know, flea markets where somebody's selling bulletproof vest or something or, you know, uh, you know, do what you're, you know, what are those calls, uh, MREs, uh, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff, military surplus equipment and that kind of right. stuff. So I started meeting a lot of these kinds of characters, you know, a lot of them had actually been mercenaries and a lot of them were military veterans and, you know, the militia type people and started coming across some of these kinds of sovereign citizen people, uh, you know, they are, uh, who definitely are interesting people. As far as them, I always had a certain respect for their attitude, even if they don't know when to quit. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then uh, I started uh, getting interested in the in internet communication. This was around the time that the internet started becoming available for public use. Uh, in fact, the person that taught me how to use the internet was a 20-year-old heroin addict stripper. And, <laughs> Yeah, those, those are the best kind of people to teach you how to use the uh, internet, though, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. uh, but uh, so I started uh, coming across all this, you know, radical stuff on the internet. And uh, that's how I actually started learning about a lot of European radicalism, like European third positionism and that kind of stuff, stuff I never heard of, national Bolshevism and all that. You know, I, uh, I you know, the European new right, um, I was always like, what the hell is this stuff? But uh, Around that time, let's see, let's see, I started Attack the System. Well, no, actually, in the late 90s, I started a group called the American Revolutionary Vanguard. And what it was supposed to be was an umbrella group for radicals, basically. I remember the first meeting we ever had, we had some leftist type anarchists there. We had some skinhead types that were interested in a different direction. Uh, I think we had some black power people there. We had some of these gun nut militia people there. So that was really the beginnings of what becomes attack the system. And then I remember being at some kind of event. I think it was a marijuana rally uh, around 1998 or 99. And some kid that was there, some college student, I mentioned I was going to wanted to start a website, like a radical website. And he said, yeah, you should call it attackthesystem.com. So I can't even remember this dude's name, but it was it was actually the guy, this was actually the guy who came up with the website that I've been running for the last 20 years. Uh, and then uh, around that, that time, I used to do a public access TV show back when that was the thing. I mean, there was no YouTube or podcast or any of that kind of stuff back then. Um, 
And then, yeah, I, I started the website, attackthesystem.com. In fact, that first one online, it would, it will, it'll be 20 years ago next month. So in January of, of 2001 is when that went online. And that was intended to be, to a large degree, what Attack the System is now, which is sort of an umbrella for radicalism with an emphasis on anarchism and more of an anti-state type of philosophy, but, but somewhat generic. You know, it's not, not this predictable leftist type of anarchism and not just straight libertarianism either, but more of a, you know, umbrella radicalism. And that's what I've been doing more or less since then. Uh, I, at time, you know, what's interesting is I'll always attract the attention of different people from different milieus. Like, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've been asked repeatedly to uh, speak on uh, Iranian national television, you know, because I'm very critical of American foreign policy. You know, they, they eat that right up. Uh, and then I'm, I've been on Russian television and all that kind of stuff before. So, you know, I'm, I'm part of the Russiagate conspiracy. <laughs> But you know, I'm one of those Russian bots. But uh, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, yeah, and then uh, for a time when this alt right milieu was uh, developing, a lot of those people were interested in some of the anti PC stuff that I had on Attack the System or that I've written about in other forums. So I got asked to speak at some of their gatherings. Um, and what, what I've generally found with, uh, fringe movements in the United States, at least. I think it's different in other places, some other places. But one thing I've noticed about uh, fringe movements of any kind is that they really do uh, attract a lot of dysfunctional people. Uh, it's uh, really amazing the kind of people that you see that are drawn to extremist movements. And I, I think there are cultural reasons for that and sociological reasons for that and psychological reasons for that. Um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we have this situation in the United States today where we have this polarized, you know, red, blue, you know, tribal warfare thing, which I think is entirely symbolic. I mean, I take that as seriously as I take the rivalry between the Yankees and Red Sox. Or something. <laughs> All right. <laughs> me, it just comes across as farcical, you know, it's like, you know, and I, I, you know, people I know that really believe in all that stuff, you know, I mean, to me, it's like they might as well be a rivalry between the Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientology. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, why do you care about that? Yeah. Yeah. But that's, yeah. So that's in a nutshell, how I, you know, what I, how I came to be what I am today, I guess. Well, here's a question for you. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, you have two individuals, one that's uh, from a conservative background, maybe something like uh, how you grew up or even maybe how I grew up and someone who's from let's say uh, my, uh, the other host Christopher's background, who's more from a left-leaning background, and let's say that you have, you know, you obviously have an extensive library, or at least where to point somebody, and let's say you want to radicalize these individuals in different directions. How would you point them there? What would be the first uh, the first pieces of literature that you would hand these individuals to read to start to get them on that path? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I do agree with you on the idea that you um, it, it's good to meet people where they're at. Uh, you know, everybody comes from a different background and has different life experiences, and they're going to be more receptive to certain things other than, than others. Uh, someone else was asking about this recently. I, I think that uh, when it comes to anarchism, the most up-to-date scholarly work I know of that mounts a defense of anarchism generally is, is uh, the works of James Scott. He's a Yale anthropologist, and he's written quite a bit of 
about the origins of the state, how the state actually developed historically, uh, going all the way back to the agricultural revolution. And uh, he, he's, uh, you know, lefty leaning, but, and he doesn't really say anything that previous generations of radicals haven't said. I mean, there've been previous anarchists and radical classical liberals and libertarians, even some socialists that have pointed out a lot of the same stuff that he does. But uh, I think he modernizes it with the most up-to-date research and that kind of stuff. So I'd say James Scott's work really, I think, is good for anybody that has a, a, an interest in criticizing the state. Excellent. For someone who's interested in knowing what anarchism is or what historic anarchism has been, I think there's a book called uh, Demanding the Impossible by Peter Marshall, who's a British philosopher. But it's a lengthy book. It's about 800 pages. Uh, but it's very comprehensive. It's you know, it's like a it's an encyclopedic uh, level of uh, information about historic anarchism. You know, including all these historic prototypes for anarchist philosophy. It goes all the way back to ancient China and Greece, and talks about the Middle Ages and all these uh, heretical sects in the Middle Ages, Christian groups, and it, it, you know, it's quasi um, quasi anarchistic uh, Islamic groups from the uh, Middle Ages and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's, it's very thorough work. Uh, I mean, I, I, some of it, it gets some, some of the historical information that I think is actually wrong. It's not a, a stellar scholarly work, but just as a really good overview and summary, you know, it's, uh, it's quite good. Uh, those two works I think are good. In fact, I'd recommend both of those before anybody tried reading any of my work. Um, I know a few years ago, a friend of mine who was involved in libertarian circles, she told me once, she said, well, whenever I, refer libertarians to any of your stuff, they say they don't understand it. So like, maybe that's not the best place to start. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as getting into the more sectarian leaning uh, or I won't say sectarian, but just different ideological streams. Uh, let's see, for someone, it, well, it all depends on what kind of topic someone is interested in. You know, it's uh like some people are really interested in topics related to war and peace. Some are interested in economics. Some are interested in cultural stuff. Uh, you know, if you like, if you meet someone from one of these uh, organized atheist groups or something like that, if you give them a copy of uh, Bakunin's God in the State, they're going to be they're going to love that. On the other hand, if you meet someone that's still into Christianity, if you give them a copy of say. Uh, Tolstoy's works, then, then that might introduce them to a whole new take on, on Christianity. Um, the uh, it, one, one thing that I think is in, interesting is uh, a work that uh, Lysander Spooner did is, is uh, critiquing the U.S. Constitution. Uh, because one thing about American-style libertarians and, and certainly conservatives is they have this idea that the Constitution is like a holy writ. No, it's like absolutely. In fact, I think it's not a coincidence that biblical fundamentalists and, and constitutional fundamentalists are often the same people, and you know, they just have to have this holy writ that they worship or something. But, uh, uh, but I so I think Lysander Spooner's work uh, critiquing the U.S. Constitution is actually quite good. Uh, the I, I, in fact, I also think it's interesting to look at the British take on on the American Revolution. You know, how, how did they see it? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It would it would really have to depend on the person. It would have to depend on the person's interests and background and you know level of intellectual sophistication and stuff like that. 
I mean, there are certainly some people I wouldn't recommend this obscure 19th century literature to because it's just not going to hold their interests. Uh, you know, for some people, you're better off referring them to a website or you know, something like that. Uh, and uh, it all depends on what kind of topics they're interested in. You know, like I, I know when I used to do a call-in talk show on public access TV over 20 years ago, I noticed that a lot of times, depending on the subject matter, you would get a different type of caller. Like sometimes the callers would sound more educated or less educated, or you get a higher volume of male or female callers or younger or older sounding, depending on what you were talking about. Uh, and it, you know, I know, I remember whenever I talked about uh, anything to do with war, most of the callers were male, uh, you know, any, or guns or anything that had a connotation to violence, most of the callers were male. If I was talking about something like psychology or something like that, and I'd get mostly female callers. Uh, was, uh, so, yeah, it, it depends on the person. Okay, fair enough. Here's a great question for you. Uh, you're a little bit older than I am. Uh, Christopher, uh, our other host, again, he is a musician. He's a bass player in a punk rock band, and we have had numerous conversations between each other lamenting what has happened to punk rock for example because punk rock used to be at the vanguard like the real tip of the spear stuff when it came to delivering the message of anti-authoritarianism of non-conformity of getting kids to question everything and you know quote to kill their idols and now in the modern era like i remember when george w bush was running for president the second time in the middle of two wars and I remember these punk rock bands put out these uh, these records called Rock Against Bush. And I found it very interesting that they seem to recede with the coming Democratic administration. Like when Barack came around and started bombing people like crazy in Yemen, uh, we didn't hear from Fat Mike from No Effects. He had nothing to say. Uh, Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day had absolutely nothing to say about it. Uh, but they seem to come out when they, they've they've essentially a lot of these more famous punk rockers have taken a side in this uh in 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 this arena and i was wondering uh do you know when this started to become a let's pick a team versus you know to hell with authority and to to hell with what our parents and what the and what the church tells us to do because that's to me that's the essence of punk rock and, and rock and roll in general whether it be heavy metal whether you know across the spectrum that was the message the message it was the soundtrack of rebellion you know what I mean? And it doesn't seem to be that way anymore. Do you have any uh, thoughts on where, why that happened? Uh, well, I suspect it was always there to some degree. Uh, I, I would definitely say never put your faith in celebrities. Uh, I mean, celebrities, uh, you know, whether it's in music or whatever, they're, they're playing a character. They're, they're marketing an image. Um, and, I, and I think that's true of even the ones that try to claim they have some kind of anti-establishmentarian stance or something like that. Uh, you know, I've always wondered uh, how sincere a lot of that was. Um, you know, I, I mean, in fact, I remember I mentioned Abby Hoffman earlier. In one of his books, he wrote that even of all the protest rock groups from the 60s that he knew, he said he only knew a couple of them that really took it seriously. The rest of them, it was just an image, you know, it was you know, just like being in the 50s, it was being a greaser or something. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think though that over time, like anything else, um, punk rock or heavy metal or rock music or whatever, has gotten to be more and more mainstream and more and more status quo as its fans have gotten older and that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, if you go to a rock concert today, it's like going to church or something, you know, 
it's like uh, they have ushers where they <laughs> take you to your assigned seats and there's no smoking and you know all that kind of stuff I and mean, i used to go to rock concerts in the 70s that were dangerous i mean you have people setting off an m80 in a in a, in a sports arena or something <laughs> you know, it was uh you know, you see people flipping out on PCP or something. And, you know, it's like, yeah. And, uh, you know, in fact, nowadays, a lot of bands, they'll put stuff into their riders where they don't want any bottles being distributed to the audience because they don't want people in the audience throwing bottles at them and that kind of stuff, which used to happen a lot. I mean, I don't blame them for doing that. So it used to, that used to actually happen quite a bit. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, anything over time becomes respectable. Uh, Elvis Presley, I mean, you know, keep in mind, he died at age 42. So his his uh, musical career only lasted about 20 years from the mid 50s to the mid 70s or whatever. And when, when he started off, he's this, you know, uh, rebel greaser guy that, you know, they were hesitant to put on TV. He was so supposedly offensive. And by the time he died, he had old ladies going to his concerts and that kind of stuff. You know, it's... Uh, and, uh, you know, the same thing with the Beatles, you know, I mean, nowadays they probably play Beatles music in elevators and stuff. Well, that's what they do. You know, I've heard it. Uh, and and, and it's, it, it's the same way everywhere. You know, I mean, it's the same way uh, with everything. Uh, you know, I mean, Ozzy Osbourne, you know, I remember back in the day, he was, people literally thought he was a Satanist that was into animal sacrifice or something. And now he's just this idiot that had a reality TV show or something. Right. Yeah. Right. So, it's, that's just the nature of things. I uh, I brought this up before. Uh, once again, Christopher Zinni in a punk rock band. He's a bass player. And uh, we as a group went down to support him at a show at a, uh, a location that will remain uh, nameless. But it was a metery. And I remember when we walked in there, there was absolutely not a mask in sight. People were smoking indoors and there was there was, you know, a fair amount of reefer being uh, spread around, which was great. And it was almost like being transported to America in 2019. So my question to you is this. I mean, of course, this is all hypothetical. I just want to get your take on it. As long the longer that this progresses, which this goofball Fauci says probably into fall of next year, because the goalposts continue to be moved regularly. uh, Do you think that there's going to be a prohibition style Hey, listen, there's still a market for people who want to listen to live music. And, you know, if there is a real risk, they want to take that risk. They want to assume responsibility for their own safety and they want to go out and they want to go see a punk rock show and have a good time. Do you think that there's going to be a, a larger movement of people establishing, a, I guess, essentially speakeasies for music venues for people to get out and, you know, try to at least get some of that energy out or to mingle with their friends and enjoy music like they used to? Because I think a, a lot of people are suffering because they don't have that interaction anymore. Yeah, well, stuff like that's already happening. Uh, I've even seen people live streaming it on Facebook and stuff like that. You know, so they go to some bar or something somewhere and it's obviously a shithole of a bar but then they have live music and there's nobody there wearing a mask and all that kind of stuff but i think you're right this is going to last for a while when all this started i uh, i was starting doing some research on the spanish flu because that's the closest historical precedent we have for this and that whole thing lasted about two years uh, it started in a very similar way it started early in the year february and march uh, and there were multiple waves of it. The first wave was in the spring, and then another wave in the fall. And it lasted for about two years, a little over two years overall. And they had all the same issues back then, you know, uh, 
public health orders that people would defy and uh, mask orders and people would protest against masks and that kind of stuff. So none of this is new. I mean, it's, it's all happened before. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Christopher, do you have anything? Uh, kick it over to you. Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So once again, with some of the COVID stuff, like we've got like a, a you know, like a generation of young children now that's going to be seeing like face masks as like almost like I hate using it, but like normalized, um, like what kind of like long-term psychological effects do you see on like perhaps like this upcoming generation? Like, it, especially if this is going to last longer, like, I don't, I don't think it's going to end anytime soon, but personally, I feel that there's probably going to be like long-term psychological harm on, on this youngest generation. Who's going to be growing up seeing people being covered in face masks. Well, uh, I'm, I don't know that I'm qualified to say, but I think you could probably do some interesting research on that. And that is you could do some research on the impact of, of, of all this kind of stuff on children that have had serious childhood diseases. For instance, let's say children that have had childhood leukemia and, and had to have, say, a bone marrow transplant or had a tumor or you know some other kind of illness that children get, you know, heart, heart surgery or something. Um, you know, a, a children that in early life uh, where they experience that kind of stuff, where they're in the hospital all the time under serious conditions and they've always got doctors or whatever hovering over them and everywhere they go, somebody's, you know, dressed in a white coat or mask or whatever. Uh, I, I think there's some evidence, what I, little I know about this, that that does have a, a long-term psychological impact on children. Uh, in fact, I know a lot of people that if they who experienced that kind of stuff as a child, and then they tended to be screwed up as adults. Now, maybe there were other issues too, but I, I do think that there probably will be some kind of long-term uh, impact. on If you have children that are in their very formative years, we do know from the psychological uh, research that the very earliest years of life, of life are very important, uh, a lot more important than what we once thought they were. Uh, and if you spend those years of life uh, being locked away in your house because it's dangerous to go outside because there's a virus going around and everywhere you go, you see people with masks. And everywhere you go, your parents or whomever are telling you to put your mask on and, and you can't go to school and you can't go to family events and, and that kind of stuff. I imagine that that would take some kind of psychological toll on, on some level. I imagine it would affect individuals differently, but I, I can't see that it wouldn't be an issue here's a good question for you so this is something that recently i just saw today uh on on twitter where there's a representative from texas who is putting in paperwork to get a vote on uh, uh reestablishing the republic of texas uh based upon uh the recent election results here's uh here's a good question for you do you think that this particular like we have a lot of like it's almost like the perfect storm right you have this uh, fatigue from pan from the pandemic and all these ridiculous, uh, I mean, I guess king decrees because they're not this. No, this isn't legislation that's being passed. These are merely governors and and uh, you know people in lab coats dictating to the people what what needs what they feel that they should be doing. Do you think that this is a good opportunity for that decentralization? Is this the beginning? Because, I mean, granted, I know that we go through cycles a lot in this country, especially post-Civil War, 
where this will you know perk up a little bit and you have very small movements there's like an alaskan independence movement i mean i know there's even one in ohio i think there's like you know 14 people that are in the group or whatever um but nonetheless they do exist uh, uh separatist movements do exist you know from ranging from large to small and texas has always been seen as like a barometer because they've always felt that they've you know kind of been their own doing their own thing and they they would have a large economy by themselves and this that and the other thing do you feel that this is a good opportunity and to follow up with that do we see any challenges in the courts in the years to come well as far as the secession idea for quite some time now every time there's a change in administrations you see uh the other side the losing side saying oh well we got to secede now when donald trump was elected you had california uh, people in California saying they wanted California to leave the United States. Um, that happened when Barack Obama was elected. All of a sudden, there was a there was a Texas independence, whatever. Back then, back when George W. Bush was president, you had people in the Northeast that wanted to secede and, and say the rest of the U.S. could just be Jesus Land or something like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it happens every time there's a a uh, move a. Uh, a change of administration and nothing ever comes of it. Um, and I think the, we're a long way from that. One thing that has to be kept in mind is that when it comes to the partisan political conflict that we have in the United States, only about 15 to 20% of the US population at most takes that seriously. Uh, most people are not nearly as ideological as that would imply. Uh, now, it is interesting that this last election had an unusually high turnout. About two-thirds of eligible voters voted in the last election, you know, about 67%, and usually it's about 55%. So that was an increase. Although I think this election was so hyped by the media and stuff, I think a lot of people just didn't want to be left out. You know, it was kind of like, uh, you know, it's like the people who never watched the World Series except for the final game, you know, the seven right. game. Yeah. Who wins? They just want to say they watched the World Series. Sure, yeah. sure. So I think a lot of the voter turnout was probably that kind of stuff. But uh, um, but I don't really see secession happening anytime soon and I, because most people don't take politics that seriously except for this relatively small minority. And of the people who do, that 15 to 20 percent, they, they're more like, as I said before, they're more like Yankees and Red Sox fans or something. I mean, it's, if you look at this substance of what they're into, it's actually very shallow most of the time. It's all just symbolic. Uh, and to the degree that they do take it seriously, they want to dominate everything. They don't want to go and do their own thing. They want to control every aspect of political and social life. So they're not about secession. I mean, I know this because they've told me so. So, yeah, I think that's where that stands at this point. All right. And as far as the courts, do you think that we'll see, like, for example, I know that there's been several state challenges to uh, gubernatorial dictatorship, uh, you know, essentially ruling from the desk in Pennsylvania and I believe Michigan and Wisconsin. And I know here in the state of Ohio, the, uh, you know, the, the Republicans finally, quote, had enough of Mike DeWine and they wanted to pass some uh, some laws to prevent him from acting the way that he has been, which he would, you know, he said he's going to veto, obviously, and I don't know if they have the votes to overturn his veto or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least there's, I mean, it, it, I don't think that the politicians care. That's not that I don't think that, that I, I know they don't care. Otherwise, they would have stepped up long ago 
when all of this started off, you know, if they were going to cite the precious constitution by the state or federal saying, Hey, hold on a minute, pump the brakes. You can't really do this. Uh, but when people are scared, they tend to really not question what they're being told. They just fall in line with that being said, though, we do see a little bit of movement where uh, the orders of some of these governors are being declared null because you, they don't have the authority to do so. Um, do you think that we'll see that continue to move in that direction? Or do you think that as people get excited for the vaccine, like, you know, there's this, all this great excitement for the vaccine that's going to, even though it's going to take us a year to get to what I guess the CDC considers herd immunity. I'm not sure how many, I think that's what 60 million people taking the vaccine to get to that level. I mean, good luck to you finding 60 million people. I don't know. Do you feel that we will see more challenges in the courts? Or do you think that people would just get tired of it and say, whatever, man, we're just going to ride it out? Well, I think several things. Uh, as far as the vaccine, I actually think it's going to be a year before the vaccine's even available to most people. I mean, it's not like they're just going to start you know, giving out the vaccine any day now. Uh, that's going to take a while uh, for that to even be distributed. Um, as far as court challenges to lockdown orders and that kind of stuff. The, the issue there seems to be that you have certain powerful interests that when it starts in, in, intruding on their territory, then they'll take some kind of action. Like you have some business interests, for example, mm -hmm. that will say, well, okay, this is bad for business. So, you know, we don't, we don't want this to happen. Like I know here in Virginia, where I live recently, the governor, um, he, he keeps going back and forth on whatever restrictions we have. I, I never can even what they are it shows how seriously I take it but uh but I know he recently imposed some more restrictions but then he said he, he wasn't going to put any more restrictions on restaurants and that kind of stuff and that's because the restaurant industry had been complaining so loudly about a lot of the restrictions you know so there's always going to be these little exceptions I know the Supreme Court handed down some kind of ruling a while back about I think it was religious services they were saying that uh the good New York had put too many uh, restrictions on religious service. Yes, yes, that's that's which accurate. is a constitutional issue. It's a First Amendment issue. So I, yeah, I mean there'll be challenges like that. It, it'll depend on whose toes they step on. When they start stepping on, you know, influential business interests, and when they start stepping on the church or something, then it's like yeah, maybe they've gone too far in, from in the eyes of the law. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Ain't Miss Angel, uh, you're the boss. Do you have anything that you would like to uh, jump in on? Um, no, what I was going to say is um, when when Chris had asked the psychological effects on children, um, I have a coworker who, you know, ha has a young daughter and she came into the office because um, the, all the schools are in remote. And um, I was doing some decorations for the upcoming holiday. So I asked her if she wanted to help me with those. And she was talking to me about how nervous she was about possibly the internet going down and her not being able to do her schoolwork. And, you know, what happens when the internet doesn't work? And what about if all of the electricity goes out? What are we going to do? And then she was very, very worried about the virus. And, and I said, you know what, sweetie, everything's going to be okay. You don't have to worry about that. And guess if the electricity and internet goes out, you'll have to use candles and there's no schoolwork. So there's an upside, you know? Yeah. So I was trying to like encourage her, you know, don't worry about it. Like it, none of that's going to happen, but if it does happen, it'll be fun because you won't have to do schoolwork and then you'll be able to do other things. And so like, I do kind of see 
I mean, that was just one kid, but she was very, very anxious about it. And she was kind of like fidgeting with her fingers. And, you know, I could tell it really bothered her. So I think that that was, you know, a good point is what Chris brought up, like the, the psychological effects on children in regards to the restrictions and everything as a result of this virus, which, you know, kind of sucks for them. So how old is she? She is six. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it has been an issue because I know a lot of people who work in the education field and they'll talk about how parents are trying to do the whole online schooling thing with their kids. And a lot of these parents have to go to work and stuff. You know, I mean, a lot of them can't even find babysitters. You know, they're just like, okay, kid, you know, sit here and watch this internet thing, you know, watch this school thing while I go to work or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, it, it's a problem. Uh, you know, I know my brother, his one of, one of his son is in high school and, and he's having issues, you know, and he's, and he's older, he's like 17 or something. Uh, and he's having issues keeping up with his online schoolwork because they say that one thing they're doing is they're trying to cram it all into a much smaller period of time. Uh, you know, there's no time spent on different curriculum and that kind of stuff. I mean, I teach university courses and I've been doing that online and I've noticed a lot more of my students are struggling than they usually do. Uh, now, I, I don't, I don't know that. I, I, you know, I've always had plenty of lazy students, you know, which I was one. You know, so, <laughs> finger, but, uh, but, but I have noticed more issues with the students when, since everything has been online. You know, it's, I don't know if they just don't take it seriously because it's online. They don't think it's a real class or something like that. But uh, yeah, it, but it, throughout the education industry, there's, I've noticed a lot of this at every level from the, you know, the elementary school all the way up to the university level. I have to completely agree with Mr. Preston because first of all, from speaking from personal experience, my, uh, my uh, graduate uh, uh, work has been done all exclusively online since last uh, at the end of uh, last March. So it's approaching a year and I absolutely can't take any of it seriously because I'm the kind of person that's very regiment and I have to clock out and then I have to have dinner. Then I have to go to the university. Then I have to go sit down in the classroom and then I'm removed from all of like my, my familiar elements. Like where I'm at in the recording studio is where I would do my work for school. And I have a record player and I've got my other books. And, oh, I also have the Internet in front of me so I could totally look up stuff <laughs> that I'm interested in doing. You know what I mean? I'll confess, especially when I'm doing like we did research methods uh, in political science last year, which was I, I, the, the, the professor is, is a really nice guy. But man alive, nobody had any idea what the hell we were supposed to do. He was trying to throw statistical work in there. <laughs> Everybody started pooping their pants because they're like, we're, we didn't, we're not supposed to do math and political science. And it's like, just relax. <laughs> but it was, it was a real bear. And now my final semester is coming up for, I have to do my thesis next semester, uh, this coming January, and uh, hopefully graduate in May. I don't even know how we're going to be able to do that online. I, I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, I'm not very excited uh, for it because, like I said, I'm a lot of some people can thrive. Now, I have a 17 year old who I don't think he's learned anything probably in a year. And um, <laughs> that's and that's putting it uh, and that's putting it conservatively because like he's like, well, I don't do well at learning online. I'm like, but you don't have anything to do. Like, all you have to do is log in and like click a few buttons and you're like you're on your way. No, not him, man. Can't be dealing with it. Can't be dealing with it. It's really. And then. <laughs> 
he's part he's part of a, a culinary uh, program that, that they actually do vocational between four different schools. And he got lumped into the culinary program. Well, his culinary program was online for a while. <laughs> so I was like, well, what, how the hell are you going to do this? What are they going to like watch you bake shit in my kitchen? Like, I mean, how is this even going to work? It's been a total, <laughs> it's been a total cluster. You know what, man, it's been, it's been a mess, but I do think I do share concern with Christopher that people like the young people, the little guys who are six, like angels, uh, angels, uh, co-workers daughter, you know, where this is normal, they, they're not going to have any really frame of reference. I mean, I can remember back maybe to when I was five, you know, and I'm f- pushing 41. I don't remember anything that was before that. I can tell you what it was like to fly on an airplane before 9-11, and I'm still pissed off about that. I talk about it regularly. <laughs> but um, for these kids, this is normal, you know, and it's a constant state of fear. But also, you know, something that we haven't discussed before on the show, we've talked about these uh, topics before, Mr. Preston. But what here's the big one is the making is making Americans into Stasi officers where it's now encouraged to, you know, please tell on your neighbor, you know, be sure to call this phone number if you see an X, X amount of cars in a, in a driveway where you know that they don't have that many people living there. I'm like there were legit snitches going around on Thanksgiving, which as far as I'm concerned is about the lowest thing that you could do to your neighbor is tell on them for having a quote large gathering or what have you. Um, Do you, do you share any of this kind of concern or do you think that it's always been there that the people have always been there? It's just now that it's becoming more apparent. Yeah. uh, Well, it's actually worse than worse in some parts of the world. In fact, in some countries, the lockdown orders are actually a lot worse uh, I know people that live in European countries, um, including some that have a reputation for being fairly libertarian societies like Switzerland. Mm. And they'll say there it's like house arrest. You know, it's uh, so, you know, Americans have actually been more resistant to a lot of the lockdown orders, I think, than people in a lot of other places. Uh, uh, but um, it, yeah, I mean, you've always had busybodies. You know, I mean, busybodies have always been there. Um, I don't, I, I know in my area, uh, that for a long time, there was a, um, neighborhood association that was always, uh, had something to say if, uh, you know, uh, somebody wasn't keeping their house up in the, you know, according to the zoning code or, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So you've just got those kinds of people. And I guess this has given, really given them the moment to shine. Uh, but, uh, I think a, a bigger issue is how permanent is that going to be? And I think that uh, when all of this passes, they'll just find something else to get upset about. And there's just a certain type of personality that likes to mind other people's business. You know, you just have that kind of psychology. You know, some people are born with it. You know, maybe we mm-hmm. can maybe we can find a way of like rooting out that gene or something at some point. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Excellent. Uh, does anybody have anything else they'd like to say before we wrap it up? I do not. Uh, no, I'm good. All right. Outstanding. Uh, Mr. Preston, it's always been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, a big honor for our show to always have you on. You're welcome anytime. I also recommend to our listeners to check out attackthesystem.com and this book uh, right here that uh, Keith has uh, written. It's an excellent book. Uh, you'll get a lot of the, the stuff that he's talked about on this show. You'll see it in this book. It's an excellent resource. The website itself, uh, there's it's, it's, it's free stuff that you guys can read, and it's from across the entire uh, spectrum 
of uh, anarchism, and uh, I'm eternally grateful for it. So once again, uh, Mr. Preston, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we hope to talk to you uh, uh, soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye, everybody.